I'm Nick Harvey-Doyle, a Ngunnawan man from the northern tablelands of New South Wales. The Yarn podcast is made on the unceded land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong people. We'd like to acknowledge First Nations people as the first storytellers. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. From the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne, this is The Yarn. I am Thomas Phillips. In medieval times, humans were confident they knew how the universe was ordered. One illustration, known as the Great Chain of Being, is a 14th century engraving by a Franciscan missionary. It depicts God at the very top of the heap, sitting amongst the clouds. Below him is a tier of humans. Below them is a lowly tier of animals, swimming, flying, or grazing. And below them, plants and minerals. But nowadays, we're often humbled by evidence that our dominion over non-humans isn't as self-evident as we once thought. And that doesn't even account for the possibility of intelligent life beyond the stars. In today's episode, we're bringing you three stories that question the differences between humans and their animal counterparts. It's the third episode of Breaking the Binaries, our series about the intersections that blend, blur, or break society's binary codes. These stories were produced in collaboration with all the best mentors for the Science Gallery's new show, an immersive exhibition about breaking binaries, which is open now. Up first, Gemma Grant on dogs who have their own jobs, just like their owners. Decorated international superstars, major sponsorship deals, multi-generational family competitors. It probably sounds to you like I'm describing the life of an elite athlete or a famous performer. But what if these words were used to describe something that wasn't necessarily human? In the world of confirmation dog shows, that is totally the case. Come on, boys, come on, hop in your bed. Quick. Oh. He'd be like, oh, I want something to eat. Hang on. That's Pam Tyler. I'm at her house in the Yarra Valley, where she lives with her husband and 12 beagles. The entire Tyler family revolves around dogs. They're breeders, their son owns a kennel, they've even travelled overseas with their dogs. But Pam's passion is dog shows. Not the type you see in movies with puppies jumping through hoops or doing tricks, but confirmation dog shows. Dog shows are all about purebred dogs. All purebred dogs have a standard that they need to adhere to that's been around for hundreds of years. Pam's Beagles, along with other dog show competitors, break the binary between animal and human. Not only are they almost as decorated as Michael Phelps, but they spend their weekends travelling around the state to attend competitions. Okay, the two gold ones, they're best in show at Beagle Specialties. One of these is from our dog, Spades, who now lives in India. Um, The rest are all, they're all my Beagle Specialty Show winners. So I've just pulled up at the Buller Exhibition Centre. Um, I was lucky enough to get an invite to this weekend show from Pam. She's attending. Um, And I'm just blown away by how many people there are here. The car parks are full, um, so many tents, such a great atmosphere. So, yeah, hopefully we meet some cool people and find out a bit about the dog show world. Hey, Joe. This is Gemma. Gemma, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. You well? Yeah, I'm good. How are you? Excellent. She's just checking out. That's Pam's son, Jared. 
He and his partner have entered their dogs in the day's show. Pam decided not to compete this time around. She isn't a big fan of the judges. I didn't think he'd like my dogs, so it's, it's pointless going to a show where you don't think the, dog, the judges like your dogs. But that brings me to one thing I was especially interested in. What sort of people decide on the winning dog? To find out, I spoke with Andrew Burt, a championship show judge with over 50 years' experience. Um, over 20 years, I became an all-breeds judge, and that means I can judge any breed anywhere in the world, and I have to know the basics, standards of, you know, something like 150 breeds of dog. Uh, Budapest was fantastic in Hungary. So evidently, it takes a lot of work to become a judge. You've got to have a pretty intimate knowledge of each breed, as well as their written standard. But according to Esther Joseph, another all-breeds judge, being a competitor is no small feat either. There's many dogs that require a lot of hard work, you know, with long coats and things like that. There's a lot of preparation and grooming, so you have to be prepared to put that in to be able to put them in the show ring and get something back from it. To me, dog shows were starting to sound like an episode of Toddlers and Tiaras. Just like humans, dogs were being judged based on predetermined and ingrained beauty standards. Plus, they both involved a lot of beautification. But Andrew explained that confirmation shows are so much more than a superficial competition. Look, some people think it's just a, a beauty contest and a very big competition and, you know, shallow. Whereas, in actual fact, m- most of the breeders are passionate about their breeds. And yes, there's a big competition and it's very important to lots of people, but you know, their, their heart's in the right spot and they're breeding healthy dogs and I think that's a really important thing. Okay, good morning everybody. We've just done our lucky draw for... For Pam, Esther and Andrew, dog shows are so much more than an activity. For these dogs as well, the shows are pretty special. They're decorated champions, they have jobs just like you and me and they stay in a tight family unit. And as Pam says, they are truly cared for. Don't be sceptical, they're very, very well looked after. Um, they're our life, that's what we do, that's what we love, that's, you know, I've been doing it for 40 years and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. It's been a great life, for dogs and me. For Pam, her beagles aren't just her work or a hobby or even her pets. They're a part of her family. And what could be more human than that? That was Gemma Grant. Next, Christopher Harley investigates a community where being a dog isn't seen as an insult. This is another piece of recently. These are moulded rubber feet. Moulded rubber feet, yeah. These are, they're like rubber socks, you know. They go a bit further up than your ankle, but they've got, like, claws on the toes. And they've got, like, paw pads and stuff on the bottom. This is me in the very messy bedroom of a guy I'd met just that day. And that's the latex. This is latex, yeah. My name is Schism. I'm a musician. And I actually work at a, a fetish boutique for more extreme kinds of play. One of the extreme kinds of play catered for at this sex shop is something called pup play. Pup play is when one or more people takes on the characteristics of an animal, usually a dog. They will get on all fours, they will no longer be verbal, they will start barking like a dog, and usually you're accompanied by someone who's not 
in a pup headspace. That person's called a handler, directing a puppy into, you know, how you would essentially play with a real dog. And you can like, play with squeaky toys or do tug of war or learn how to roll over. Good boy. Ready? Fetch. Good boy. Drop it. That's it. What's the preparation involved in becoming Pups Kissen? All I really need to have is my hood. So hoods are lots of different types. They essentially, you put them on, you look more like a dog. Like, I like gear. We, we call it gear, so um, that can be clothing. So I like leather clothing, I like rubber clothing, and then I have lots of gear, like I said, the mitts. They stop me from using my hands. I really like those. I like putting on these things because it makes me feel less human, I guess. A couple of other things. You have a television. Oh, that's a heater. So this is a belt tail. So it literally looks like a tail. Yeah, like a puppy tail. And it goes in your belt. So this one's actually a more firm one. So usually they're really soft silicon and they just move. They don't stop moving. And you're just constantly wagging because of how jiggly they are. How do you show that you're shy when you're a puppy then? Well, you, this one you can actually turn upside down. <gasps> So pup play may not be the most common form of intimacy that we know, but according to Schism, it's a growing and more widely accepted trend. In Melbourne, they see 30 to 40 pups and handlers of all different personalities come together at what they call a mosh. But Schism thinks that across Victoria, thousands of people would have participated in this form of play. What's your personality as pup Schism? I'm a little bit of a brat, I think. I think it's a common trait in puppies. So... Half the time I'm really snoozy and the rest of the time I'm going and finding things to chew on. Whether that's, you know, a person or whether it's a chew toy. <laughs> Do you find that the more that you spend time as pup schism that elements of him come into you just in your day-to-day life? Yeah, definitely. I have ADHD. Um, and there's a lot of things that I would do with ADHD, like I'd like, make up silly songs and sing to myself alone or whatever. And when I was a teenager, I kind of tried to stop doing those sorts of things. And now I kind of associate those things with like puppyish behavior. And now I'm not shy about when, it, you know, if I've got the house to myself, I'll like bark to myself. Immediately I thought of recording that my five-year-old nephew James sent to me not that long ago. Hey, Uncle Chris, this is what a dog sounds like. And suddenly, I kind of got it. There's a freedom that we had as kids when we would pretend to be something we're not. We could express ourselves in an interesting way, a way that wasn't bound by the rules of, of being human. Where do you sit on the line between schism as a human and pup schism? My personal opinion is that I am way closer to a human than a dog like there are people who are out there who really really identify with being we call them bio dogs that's the term for it a biological dog rather than a human pup and for me being a human pup is about being human it's not about being a real dog or wanting to be a real dog it's about wanting to express who I am as a human in a more true way to how I actually am in ways that may not be socially acceptable for a human. Yeah, absolutely. So it's body language, like the way that a dog will tilt its head when it's confused and stuff like that. Belly rubs, you know, platonic touch. It's kind of like the validation of those things from other people. That's what it condenses down to, to me anyway. 
That was Christopher Harley. In today's final story, Anne Karani challenges humanity's self-appointed supremacy over the universe. In 1977, NASA launched a spacecraft called Voyager 1. Four, three, two, one. We have ignition and we have liftoff of the Titan Centaur carrying the first of two Voyager spacecraft to extend man's senses farther into the solar system than ever before. This spacecraft included a golden phonograph record that had greetings in 55 different languages. Hello from the children of planet Earth. Sounds from planet Earth, such as exploding volcanoes. Animal sounds like chirping birds. And chimpanzees. All the way to sounds of a train. And a crying baby. It also included masterpiece soundtracks of music from artists like Beethoven. And Mozart. This golden record was launched in an effort for humankind to communicate and connect with aliens. To find out if humans and aliens could ever coexist on Earth, I spoke to astronomer and university professor in astrophysics, Rachel Webster. Do you believe that we as the human race are alone? in this universe? I don't believe we're alone. There's got to be life elsewhere in the universe. I think you'll find if you talk to a biologist, they say, oh, but life is so complicated. It's hard to imagine that it could happen anywhere else. But as an astronomer, I'm inclined to think life will emerge where it can, where conditions are favorable. Do you think it's wise that these two groups of scientists at SETI are contacting aliens and disclosing Earth's location in the process when notable theoretical physicist Stephen Hawking warned against contacting aliens? and told us to actually leave Earth and find another habitable planet? To stay risks annihilation. It could be an asteroid hitting the Earth. It could be a new virus, climate change, nuclear war, artificial intelligence gone rogue. We can and must use our curiosity and intelligence to look to the stars. We must do it now before humanity is overtaken by some disaster that we can neither anticipate nor control. Unlike Stephen Hawking, I mean, I think he worried about the fact that there's a destructive urge amongst humanity and therefore that, you know, a more sophisticated race might want to come and basically beat us up or something like that. I guess I'd take a slightly more optimistic view, which would be that, yes, they'd be more sophisticated, much more sophisticated, but just the fact that they had survived much longer than us tells you that they're much more sensible. In other words, they haven't bribed the planet with climate change and so they're not going to be mean to us invasion we have been invaded by another species who erase our minds to take our bodies death this is how most science fiction movies depict what would happen if humans and aliens were to come into contact 
But if you think about it, it doesn't make sense. I mean, you just need to look at the world today to see this. The really aggressive, nasty people end up wiping themselves out. It's only when you've got a cooperative and positive society that you actually move forward and evolve. So can we coexist with aliens? Yeah, I don't see why not. Where will that be? Will it be on planet Earth? It will, of course, depend on what sort of life form it was. Quite clearly, we're very well adapted to Earth and the environment that we find ourselves in. So we're living within a certain temperature range our star has a peak in its energy emission for example think about why your eyes are the size they are it's all about the peak wavelength that is coming from our star if our star was rather cooler and the peak wavelength was longer then our eyes would be bigger in order to actually see so a lot of the characteristics that we have are adapted to the sort of environment that we find ourselves in and i don't think most people would think that another planet that was hospitable to life would need to look exactly like Earth. There's no real reason to assume that. And so life forms could be somewhat different. So would these other life forms come here or would we go there? I mean, we know what we need. We don't know what they would need. What happens after we've established contact? If you look at mankind, there's a lot of divisions, let's just say. But if they saw that there was something else out there, that the world was really much bigger than they imagined in ways that were understandable at some level, then a lot of the petty discord that we have might evaporate. That was Anne Karani. These stories were produced for the Science Gallery in collaboration with mentors from All the Best. A massive thank you to reporters Gemma Grant, Christopher Harley, and Anne Karani. Thanks also to mentors Mel Chun, Ollie Krusek, Dan Simo, and Danny Stewart. The yarn is from the Centre for Advancing Journalism at the University of Melbourne. It's produced on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Our executive producer is Louisa Lim. I'm Thomas Phillips. See you next week for Breaking the Binaries, Episode 4.